Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement, your source for news and commentary from a cultural and right of center perspective. African American Conservatives. Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strader. I encourage you to please go to acons, A-A-C-O-N-S, dot substack, dot com. That is where you will find our commentary. You'll find links to this podcast. Please subscribe, follow, like, follow us on all of our social media platforms. We're now on threads also, so you can follow us on the newest platform. And uh, subscribe, follow, as I said, like all of those good things. And be sure that you are checking our Substack. Uh, subscribe for free and you will get notifications of each of our podcast episodes as well as when new commentary goes up. All of those good things. So with that out of the way, let us introduce you to this week's guest. We have Devery Anderson with us. He is a noted documentarian, historian, and author. His book, Emmett Till, The Murder That Shocked the World and Propelled the Civil Rights Movement, is the basis for the ABC limited series, Women of the Movement. His latest book, the one that we will discuss today, is A Slow Calculated Lynching, The Story of Clyde Kennard. And it is my pleasure to introduce you to Jeffrey Anderson. Welcome to our show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You're very welcome. Uh, In the rich annals of African-American history filled with figures like Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, and Martin Luther King Jr., the story of Clyde Kennard is far from the most famous. What drew you to it, and why should we know it? Well, I was drawn to it in 2017 uh, when I was just reading uh, a book that mentioned it kind of in passing. And uh, But the details that the author put in the book just really intrigued me to learn what happened to him and that the story didn't just end with his death that there was an effort to exonerate him decades later. And so the story didn't really end until 2006. And so when I saw that uh, two-part story really involving Clyde Kennard, I just thought this is a great moment to highlight, I think, in a book because there was kind of a happy ending where people from all walks of life got together and tried to, to exonerate him and did get that done. And so I thought it was just uh, very tragic, but in the end, uh, it brought uh, several communities together and I wanted to highlight all of that. And so I was really drawn to the story and uh, worked on it. it, took about four years to complete the manuscript and then another year and a half or so to get it ready for publication. And so it came out in March and uh, I was really happy to tell this story. Wow. Now, tell us a little bit about Clyde Kennard and uh, how he was shaped by his mother and the city of his origin, Hattiesburg. Yes, uh, Clyde Kennard was born and raised in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Uh, his, um, His family, his mother was very religious, devout Baptist, and 
so was Clyde Kennard. And he was the kind of person that would do anything for anybody. Everybody I talked to that knew him, and there's still people around who knew him, a few that are older than him that are still living, and several that uh, were youth that were kind of mentored by him. And they all said that he would just do anything for anybody, would never say an unkind word about anybody. And um, Mrs. Ellie Damer uh, told me that uh, uh, she knew two real true Christian men in her life who really um, exemplified Christianity. That was her husband, and that was Clyde Kennard. So he was an outstanding uh, young man, and he uh, was in the military, served uh, six years. He served four years uh, and was part of the post-war uh, occupation of Germany. He helped teach children there denazification classes. Then he uh, uh, was... Um, uh, released from the army, and then he uh, went and got his GED in Chicago, and then he entered the army again, re-enlisted, and spent two years uh, the second time, and that's when he got his first taste of college life. He enrolled in Fayetteville uh, State Teachers College and uh, while he was in the army, and then he left college because he was deployed to Korea, and he was a paratrooper there during the Korean War, and I think he made 33 jumps during that period. And then he was um, discharged a second time in 1952. So he had this taste of college life and decided he really wanted to keep going. And so he went to the University of Chicago in, uh, uh, in Chicago and stayed with his sister there and uh, was there for a couple of years. Uh, his father, stepfather had a stroke and so he had to return to Hattiesburg and, um, and and that's kind of where the story, his public story, begins when he tried to enter what is now the University of Southern Mississippi. This would have been in 1955 at this point. Wow. Now, you describe, uh, just to follow up on what you just said, you describe one part of Kennard's military experience writing, quote, as part of his overseas stint during the United States uh, post-war occupation, he taught democracy and denazification classes to German, the German youth organization, kids who had been indoctrinated into uh, Nazi ideology, but who also, ally, who the allied forces believe stood the best chance of rebuilding building Germany after the war, and that this experience was an eye-opener for him, end quote. How so? Yes, we cut out a little bit there, but you say you're talking about how it was an eye-opener for Kennard yes. as well. Is that what you mentioned? Yes, yes. Uh, because he, being overseas and teaching all this stuff, and some of the questions that the kids posed to him was, um, uh, you know, what American life was for African-Americans at the time. And he um, and he had to really do some soul searching when they asked him that stuff. And so he said when he came home, he just decided to do something about it. And uh, because he came home and realized that the freedom he was fighting for. And so uh, and it was it really was an eye opener for him once he applied to the University of Southern Mississippi, which was called Mississippi Southern College at the time. Acronym MSC. And uh, he tried a few times to get in. This was after the Brown decision. And so legally uh, they couldn't really keep him out because he could have sued to get in. 
but he didn't go that route. Uh, he wasn't he wasn't the kind of person to really do that, at least at that point. Um, he was on good terms with the college president and uh, and others at the university. They he said they treated him well, but they used every excuse in the book to keep him out uh, without mentioning his race because legally they couldn't do that. And so um, I know they said he didn't uh, have the right letters of recommendation and he turned his application in late. Um, they used things like that to keep him out. And so he tried um, a couple of times in 55, made inquiries again in 56. But in 58, he tried very seriously to get in. Uh, this time, the, because he was making so much noise, the governor had the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission investigate him to try to find, uh, really to dig up dirt on him, to try to find reasons to keep him out of, to be able to reject his application. And uh, they couldn't really find anything. They, they checked all the police records and any, you know, found nothing um, on him in a legal sense. He'd never been in any trouble. The worst that came up with was that his credit rating had suffered uh, after he got out of the army. Um, uh, they got behind in their uh, mortgage payments. His family owned land. They owned about 160 or 180 acres. I can't remember now land uh, and farmed in uh, uh, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. So they were landowners and uh, were, were, you know, doing pretty good, except they, at some point something happened and they got behind, uh, but then he was able to recover uh, uh, his uh, credit uh, issues by the time the Sovereignty Commission investigated him. So they, they learned that he was doing much better credit-wise. And so that investigation uh, just led to the governor and Clyde Kennard uh, finally just meeting together. And the governor told him he really wanted that if, if he tried to apply to the school again, or it would just cause so much uh, racial tension on campus that the governor felt he'd have to close the school. And he told him just to hold off until after the primary elections because he, he didn't want anything <laughs> to recognize his uh, 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 chosen successor. Uh, the office the governor couldn't run for re-election back then you couldn't succeed yourself in mississippi after you couldn't serve two back-to-back -back terms and run again later if you wanted so after his uh candidate uh actually lost uh to ross barnett uh, clyde tried again uh and this time um they rejected him uh, gave some reasons again for it but then right after they gave him his letter of recommendation when he was meeting with the college president, he left the campus, he went out to his car and there were two constables waiting there for him and told him that when he drove into campus that day, he was uh, driving recklessly and speeding and they couldn't even keep up with him is what they said. So they arrested him and once they uh, brought him to the jail, uh, they told him they found uh, five bottles of wine and uh, some other hard liquor in his car. And Mississippi being a dry state, that was illegal. And so they charged him with not only reckless driving, but illegal of alcohol. And so, and the Sovereignty Commission didn't frame him because their internal memos, they were surprised by this and actually upset because they felt that they would get blamed and they didn't want anything distracting uh, his rejection uh, to the college by blaming the Sovereignty Commission. 
but others, but they suspected he had been framed and so did the district attorney and the sheriff. Their internal letters to each other said he clearly was framed, but none of them did anything about it. It was a misdemeanor charge that went to the Justice of the Peace Corps, so the DA didn't have any jurisdiction over it. But the DA knew he was framed, um, the police chief did, and the, the head of the Sovereignty Commission, so did the college president. They all suspected this. They just kind of sat back and let it happen. And uh, so he was charged and convicted the first time with that. And so that kept him, that kind of distracted him from being able to go to school or try to get in at that point. But at that point, he started making public threats that uh, he would um, file a lawsuit to get in, which is what James Meredith ended up doing a few years later. And uh, so then he was ended up getting framed a second time. This time he was a, he used part of his farm for, as a chicken farm. He raised hens and sold eggs. That's how he made a living. He was also an insurance salesman and he did lawn work. And so he didn't live exclusively off of his earnings from the chicken farm. But uh, uh, one morning in September, 1960, uh, a young man named Johnny Lee Roberts uh, went to the uh, Forest County Co-op uh, and took uh, he was an employee there, but he went on a day on a Sunday morning when this co-op was closed, broke in to the warehouse, took five bags of chicken feed and took it to Canard. He said he took it to Canard's uh, chicken farm by prearrangement. And he told the police when he was caught that Clyde Canard had actually um, masterminded this uh, theft and that he told him how to leave the, the back doors open the night before when he left work so that he could break in easily and get the chicken feed the next day. Johnny Lee Roberts was uh, caught by the night watchman who called the police and the police uh, stopped uh, or arrested Johnny Lee at his uh, home or his, his brother's home. At that. I can't remember where he was at. He went to his brother's because his brother owned the car and he also went to his mother's house. But I think he left there and uh, went back to his own place or his brother's house and the police came there and they arrested him and then he that's when he told the police that Clyde Kennard was behind this whole thing so the police arrested Clyde Kennard that same day that same morning and charged him with being an accessory to this theft and uh, a conviction in this case this felony case would have disqualified him from ever being able to go to a public school in Mississippi and he was tried and convicted now I want to go back and touch on a few things that you mentioned just to bring them out a little further. Uh, what was the significance and the impact of the 1938 Brown uh, Supreme Court decisions in Gain v. Canada and the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education in the Clyde Kennard case specifically? Well, these earlier cases focused on higher education. And so... Uh, there were cases of, uh, you know, uh, and I can't remember, there was, there was several different ones. And so it's already been a while since I've, uh, since the book came out. And so I'm starting to forget what was what, but these earlier cases really focused on higher education. I know in one case, a young man had applied to a law school and, uh, um, and so that ended up going, you know, he was rejected and that ended up going to court, um, and I know that the uh, to keep with Plessy versus Ferguson or with uh, separate but equal, they had to, to 
provide a way for him to go to school without having to travel out of state because white students didn't have to do that. And so to make it equal, even if it was separate, they had to be able to provide a way for him to go without making the sacrifices white students wouldn't have had to make. So there were those kind of cases that affected uh, law school. And so, um, and I know there was another that uh, I think they argued about this, the separation part was hard because as a law student, you had to be able to interact with other students and uh, uh, just kind of play off of each other with legal cases and ideas and things like that. And since he didn't have any other students uh, to do that with, um, you know, what was he to do in that case? So, so these cases were kind of settled a long time ago, but the, the 1954 uh, Brown case, uh, you know, took care of public education. And even though the Kennard case wasn't really determined by Brown, uh, the publicity behind it and kind of uh, doing a blanket settling of all uh, public uh, education uh, at that point is when um, it just made it harder for uh, those wanting to keep people at, like Kennard out of school, out of a, a public institution. It just made it that much harder legally to have a, any justification to do it. Now, you wrote, quote, it took only two months after Brown for a group of 14 men to meet in the Delta town of Indianola to organize the first Citizens Council, end quote. What was the purpose of this Citizens Council and what means did they use to achieve their purpose and how effective were they? The Citizens Council was a group that uh, came about after the Brown decision as a way to uh, really thwart um, the decision, try to get it overturned or to keep Mississippi and and where everywhere else where uh, the Citizens Council formed in the South uh, to, to be able to give them the power or to try to have the power to just fight against any effort to integrate the schools back then. And uh, Mississippi, I think uh, there was a branch, uh, at least one branch set up in most of the counties. I think it was a $5 per year uh, uh, dues that you had to pay. And then they also got donations from elsewhere. And so they were a powerful group. And what they would do mainly uh, was use uh, ways to intimidate people economically. Like if you were known to be an activist trying to uh, fight for integration, they would find ways to, uh, if you had a business to boycott it, if you were a, a, in a profession where you had an employer, over you, it wasn't your own business, then they would put pressure on the uh, employer to fire that person. A um, lot of uh, principals and teachers at uh, black schools um, kept quiet during this time or even publicly acted like they uh, were against integration because if they would have said anything, if there's any suspicion that they were for it, they would have gotten fired because the school board uh, and the head of the school board, uh, superintendents, all that, they were always white people. And so um, the, the, the teachers and principals had to really uh, be quiet. So there was, it, it was just really an mainly an economic uh, type of intimidation. They, they prided themselves on not using any violence. And maybe as a group, they didn't, but there were instances of just individual rogue members using violence. 
I think the, the shooting of Gus Kortz, who he wasn't killed, but he was shot. Uh, he was over the NAACP in uh, his community, and uh, he was shot one night, and he believed uh, uh, he knew who the person was who was over the local Citizens Council, but he may have been acting alone in that case, and it wasn't an actual council uh, hit job or anything like that. Now, one can't talk about the Citizens Council without thinking of civil rights uh, hero Medgar Evers, whom you mentioned several times in the book. What was the connection between Kennard and Evers? Well, Medgar Evers being uh, the field secretary for the NAACP in Mississippi, after Clyde was uh, charged with uh, reckless driving and um, illegal possession of alcohol, in 1959, September of 59, once he was out on bail, he went straight to Jackson and uh, went to the NAACP office there and met with Megger Evers and told him what was happening. Um, not sure if they had already heard about it. I think he was released right away and so it wasn't in the news yet. But uh, he was able to secure an attorney with NAACP, Jess Brown, and Megger Evers really uh, just took on the case uh, because right away his um, he was sued uh, by the co-op, the Forest County co-op where he got his chicken feed. Uh, he was sued because the co-op said that he wasn't, uh, apparently they said that he had a, a contract with them to sell his eggs to them, that he'd been selling them elsewhere. And so at some point his, uh, his hens and his farm equipment was confiscated. So the NAACP started raising money right away to get him back in the chicken business by uh, giving him a couple thousand dollars to buy more chickens and enough feed to get them growing uh, to where he could start making a profit off of them. And the understanding was that he would pay that loan back. And uh, he was also sued and um, they put a, a, a lien uh, on his property and they were going to end up selling that too. But uh, some other people with the NAACP got together. They were, uh, one was a doctor, I believe, and the other had enough means that they were able to get a $4,000 loan and give that to Kennard with the understanding that he would start paying that back. But then when he was charged the second time with the chicken theft and sent to Parchman uh, with a seven-year conviction, it made it impossible for him to earn the money. And so the NAACP kept working uh, with the family, uh, being patient uh, so that they could slowly earn the money. His sister did a lot of the, uh, uh, paying back of that loan. But during that time, Megger Evers just stayed in touch, stayed in touch with Clyde's mother, uh, kept giving him hope that, you know, they could get the conviction overturned. I know they did a, a couple of appeals. I went to the Mississippi State Supreme Court. The State Supreme Court actually overturned the uh, first conviction of reckless driving uh, or the, I guess they didn't actually overturn it. They just, uh, uh, well, I guess they they overturned it in the sense that they gave, they said he should have a, a new trial. Mm. But he was in prison already for the second conviction. There was no point in doing it. So they never retried it. So uh, on the books, it was just uh, overturned because mm. they never did it again. Uh, and they, the second conviction also went to the state Supreme Court uh, who uh, upheld the first decision, and then the uh, it went to the United States Supreme Court, but they didn't hear that they didn't take on the case, uh, and so he was left with the understanding that he would serve that seven-year term 
Uh, now, why did Clyde Kennard apply to Mississippi Southern College and why did it garner so much publicity in Mississippi and across the nation? Well, he applied there because when his stepfather had that stroke, he was incapacitated. He ended up dying a year later. And so his mother needed help on the farm. So he had to stay in Hattiesburg. And so he couldn't travel, leave home to go to school elsewhere. There were black colleges in Mississippi, but the commute, he just, he couldn't leave. He would have to only come back on weekends and, and the chicken farm required, you know, daily uh, feedings and uh, all of that stuff. And so uh, he just felt that he couldn't leave town. And the only school in Hattiesburg would have been Mississippi Southern College. And so uh, his attempts to apply um, uh receive publicity. He was the first uh, African-American to try to get into uh, Mississippi Southern College. And he was naive enough to believe that he could do it. Uh, he, he honestly thought he would, um, that just on merit, they would uh, allow, him, allow him in, but it didn't work. And so uh, it started getting publicity because it was just a, a case of it, you know, a black person trying to integrate a white school. But he also wrote some letters to the editor uh, of the Hattiesburg American um, during this time. I think he wrote, th he wrote three over a few year period uh, explaining his views and that. And, and that made news mainly locally, but uh, once he was convicted of the first charge that, uh, that did get some national coverage. Then when he was convicted on the second one, uh, it got a lot more. Uh, I know it was in the New York Times and in Jet Magazine, uh, some of the other publications uh, by Johnson Publishing, who did Jet. And so those are the things that, uh, those are the reasons why it made news around. Now, there are several accounts as to why Clyde Kennard wanted so badly to attend uh, Mississippi Southern College. Uh, he argued that it was the only school he could attend without leaving the farm, as you mentioned. Uh, others said that he wanted to be the next Martin Luther King Jr. or that he was a tool of the NAACP. Why do you think he was so determined uh, to be an MSC student when he could have taken an easier path to obtain a degree? Well, I think, you know, because he had already gone to school for a couple of years in Fayetteville and a couple of years in Chicago, he didn't have a lot left to do. Um, most of the classes were, you know, he was able to get transferred. I know he wanted to major in political science. And later on, he talked about how he, you know, thought he could, you know, might become a, a lawyer, civil rights lawyer. Um, but this is later after he, I think he really knew he couldn't go back to school because of the health problems that he, that he developed. Um, he, it was pretty clear that the NAACP wasn't backing him. Like they didn't set him up to do this. Although later on they helped him and said, uh, after this is after he was convicted. Um, so his first few attempts he made all on his own. Um, and wanting, as far as wanting to be another Martin Luther King, I know some of his friends felt that he, that was his reason. Others said that he just really wanted to go to school and, but he did, uh, want to help other, uh, black students be able to achieve the same dreams he wanted. And so in that sense, I think he did, you know, want to, to be helpful, but I don't, I, I don't see evidence that he was really, I think his, everything he did was genuine, that he was sincere. 
um, even if he wanted to uh, be an advocate. Um, uh, there could be very pure motives behind that, just wanting to help other students be able to not have to go through what he went through. And so, um, but, but some, you know, who knew him uh, and others who didn't, but even a few who knew him felt that he was um, wanting to be a martyr. I think his good friend, uh, Dave uh, Madison said that. Um, and that was just some opinions of some other people that knew him, but without me ever having gotten to know him or interview him, uh, those are just different opinions that they just all go in the mix and I put them in the book because I thought we had to see that balance of what people's viewpoint was. How would you summarize Kennard's relationship with the NAACP and why was uh, even the mention of the NAACP so infuriating to so many Mississippians? Well, they just really saw the NAACP, well, oh, a few reasons, you know, because the NAACP was headquartered in New York and it was a national organization. People uh, in the in Mississippi felt that anytime an outsider came along, it was just, they were just very sensitive to that, felt that they should just be able to run their own affairs. And so any outside influence was just, they really immediately uh, reacted to that. But with the NAACP, they also knew that they were um, wanting to enforce the new laws of the, uh, you know, the new decision by the Supreme Court. And uh, they feared that they wanted the, NA, that the NAACP, it was going to be a domino effect, that there would be, that uh, integration would lead to intermarriage, that intermarriage would lead to the end of the white race, or, or at least um, be diminished and become a minority in the country. And so uh, just feelings like that, they just wanted to, to nip it in the bud really with them. And so anytime anyone was had any, if there was a branch of the NAACP like in Hattiesburg, they had to meet in secret. Uh, it wasn't illegal, but they knew they'd be harassed. And the local sheriff did take down license plate numbers if they suspected that a group of people were meeting together. And so they just developed this uh, attitude early on, but it really um, was exacerbated by the Brown decision. Now, you mentioned uh, Johnny Lee Roberts. Why do you guess that he testified against Kennard only to, retract, uh, only to retract his testimony years later? Yeah, and that's one I really wanted to get at and have a definitive answer because it was hard to figure out why i know people who knew him like a justice of the peace who testified at his uh proba probation hearing said that you know this young man will do anything anybody tells him and uh and can't make his own decisions and so and he he was illiterate and he um i guess was kind of slow mentally i interviewed him uh and um I got that impression, although he'd had 40 years, some of it may have been just naivete and immaturity because he seemed that just in the years since he'd just grown up and maybe wouldn't be able to be influenced that easily. But I could tell he was still, I mean, he still couldn't really read and um, uh, had to explain some things a few times to him and stuff like that. So I think and I, the question I, I always wondered was, well, the, the questions that always came to my mind were, was he set up in advance to do this or was he 
an easy target or someone that they could use once he stole the feed. And then the police concocted an idea that um, to frame Kennard, because at that point, Kennard was um, saying publicly that he was going to file a lawsuit. And so at that point, they I think they wanted to do anything so that he wouldn't do that. And so I think um, when the when Johnny Lee Roberts said this chicken feed was going to Clyde Kennard and that he'd already been caught for stealing it, that they concocted the idea for this. Now, but then I wondered, well, with Johnny Lee having so many, um, you know, being so hard, you know, being slow mentally, could he stick to his story? And if they wanted to frame Kennard, could he have held up well under pressure on the witness stand? And I, I always thought that would have been a very hard thing to do. But when I came across uh, a journalist, a budding journalist who interviewed Clyde Kennard's mother in 1962 after Clyde was in prison, just a year after he went to, to uh, Parchman, his mother said that one of, that during, uh, after the theft, but before the trial, there was a two month period there, that one of Johnny Lee's brothers told, uh, Mrs. Smith, who is Clyde Kennard's mother, that some men came and got Johnny Lee to practice the other day, and they came and got him again last night. So they had a couple of months to convince him that he had stolen his feed for Kennard or whatever. And and when I and even though he was asked on the witness stand, did anybody promise you anything uh, by testifying against Kennard? Um, he said no. And I asked. Um, a federal judge, Charles Pickering, who I interviewed for the book, uh, about that. Like, could he have honestly said no if maybe they didn't promise him anything? They just kind of gave him a wink and said things would go much better for you. Actually, Charles Pickering said mm. common with the DA to kind of say, I'm not promising you anything, but things will go better for you. And, and Judge Pickering told me that was actually a common thing, which I I guess in my naivete, I didn't uh, really know that. But um, uh, so I, you know, who knows exactly what happened, but, uh, I, but I think he wasn't set up. And he told me outright he wasn't. And I think on that, I could believe him. But I think he became an easy one to use once he was caught with the feet. Um, and that's just me. That's just the best, looking at all the evidence, that's, the, that's really the best I can come up with. And recanting the testimony at, at that point, you know, it was years later. And um, in, in the interview that Jerry Mitchell did with him when he first recanted, and that went into the Hattiesburg American and uh, Jackson Clearing Collection, um, he seemed relieved to be able to talk about it and uh, felt that um, he had, I got the impression when I interviewed him too, and when Jerry did, that he'd been harboring this for a long time. And that he had felt bad. In fact, he even told me he he hated what happened to Clyde Kennard. But he was very careful in his words not to take any blame for anything himself with me. And his testimony, his his later when he recanted and when he uh, gave a um, uh, sworn affidavit shortly after, and then when he talked to me, there were still contradictions in his story. So I don't know everything, but uh, the fact that he recanted. Uh, all these years later. I know some people feel that, well, what did he have to lose at that point? He could just recant uh, to get Kennard exonerated, even if Kennard was guilty. But um, I think looking at all the evidence, uh, Kennard wasn't guilty, and I think he was a 
Now, why was Clyde Kennard denied early release from prison to treat his cancer? Do you believe that racism was a factor? Well, when, you know, the, the cancer was diagnosed in, he had had symptoms of it before he even went to prison the first time. Uh, he was he sat for a year in jail before he uh, went to prison because while his case was under appeal, he um, he got to stay out of parchment until the Supreme Court didn't hear it, and then he was shipped off to parchment. So he's in in the jail about a year. His attorney argued even before uh, or after the conviction that he should be able to be out on bail because he was having all these problems with his. Uh, uh, stomach and he wanted him to be able to be tested and the judge said no uh and so he had to stay in prison in the jail and then several months into his jail while he was in jail a doctor came and examined him because he was having so much pain and the doctor felt he had cancer and uh wanted to be tested and he was denied that again it wasn't until he was in parchment and collapsed that he uh was finally allowed to to, to get out for surgery and then the uh, um, uh, superintendent wouldn't allow him to his follow-up treatments, uh, and he kept him out on on uh, uh, hard labor in the in the prison. So would this have happened to any prisoner? Um, I, you know, on that I don't know for sure, but I just know that they knew. You know, Kennard had a reputation as a troublemaker already, and he was framed which I think, you know, because he was framed because he was trying to get into a school, there was, the case was rooted in racism. The, the, the prisoner superintendent, he had a history, at least later, of, uh, uh, because he was sued by some students uh, later on who were housed at Parksman, uh, some civil rights students. And during that time, he made them uh, take laxatives. I mean, it was just a horrible thing. And he was sued and lost that uh, uh, suit. So uh, I, I don't think um, uh, um, Ross Barnett, see, there are so many different people involved that I think some of them had racist attitudes. Ross Barnett, for, all, for his reputation, he did let him out, and he did say he wanted him to get better. Um, he let him out for surgery, and then when he learned of his condition, uh, he commuted a sentence later on and said he wanted him to, to get the treatment he needed. He was put off for a long time. Now, he may not have known that uh, Mr. Brazil, Brazil at the prison was denying him these uh, visits to the doctor that the doctor wanted him to have. See, uh, Ross Barnett, when he denied Kennard, the doctors recommended he get an early parole so he can get treatment. Ross Barnett denied that, but he said, uh, but uh, he needs to go to the doctor as often as Dr. Dalton says he needs to. So Ross Barnett was wanting him to get the help. The superintendent denied it. And if he didn't let Ross Barnett know, if Ross Barnett wasn't getting the additional details, he wouldn't have known that Kennard was being denied this. So I, so I don't want to say there was blanket racism on everybody. Uh, and I don't think there was. I think um, Ross Barnett, had he known that uh, Kennard wasn't getting follow-up care, he would have uh, ordered it. Uh, but I... I think Brazil, uh, the superintendent, um, was known to be kind of a racist guy. 
uh, treating the black prisoners differently. Um, I think the doctors wanted to certainly were wanting to help him. They were wanting him to get the care he needed. So there were, there were good guys and bad guys in the whole thing. And these were white people. So I think there were plenty that wanted him to have the, the care that he needed and some that uh, hope he just kind of brought in prison. So, so I want to be careful that it was a mix, I think. <laughs> if he had not been stricken with cancer or if he had been allowed the proper treatment and had survived, do you think he would have eventually succeeded in integrating Mississippi Southern College or was the system at that point just too rigged against him? Well, he was, you know, uh, convicted and sent away in 1960. The school did integrate in 65, allowed two young women in at first. Now, with him and his history, they may have felt that there was too much baggage with him. They may have continued even into 65 if he had still been the one wanting to integrate. And at this point, the James Meredith case had already happened, and you saw the, the riot uh, at Ole Miss and all of that and i think for someone with a with a history already behind them i think uh the college president uh, uh dr mccain would have been very leery to let canard in even as late as 1965 and i think by allowing the two women in he was able to do it quietly and with no fanfare very little fanfare these two young women were giving were given guards, but they, uh, Raylani Branch, one of the two women that was that integrated the school, said they didn't really need them. Uh, people treated them fine, and it was a very quiet transition from being segregated to integrated. It may not have been had Kennard been the one to integrate, just simply because of the baggage. It would have gotten too much attention. That's just my feeling, but who knows? Uh, he probably could have come along a year later once it was, the doors were open and once it was done quietly. Uh, he probably could have just got in quietly at that point, but I don't think he would have been the test case ever because I think they could have feared another James Meredith, perhaps. Now, you point out that in 1963, the same time Kennard was finally issued executive clemency, that the University of Southern Mississippi, former formerly known as Mississippi Southern College, as you pointed out, uh, an African-American theology student named Johnny Frazier applied. What happened? He was also rejected. And this is interesting. This was just a couple of years before they integrated. But he was also, he, he had a reputation that preceded him. He had uh, been an activist and had been arrested a few times already. And so I think the publicity around his case was partly why. But I think just still at that point, they weren't ready. And I think there were, it just was a safer thing to allow a couple of young women in uh, just because um it would have been just much quieter. I think they would have gotten a little more sympathy. Um, young women, uh, you know, a, a, a black man on a camp, white campus, I think there was still the fear of, of interracial dating and all that kind of thing. The, the black beast rapist kind of attitude that so many had had that just, there was just a general fear of black men anyway. So I think the young women uh, were just safer. It was easier. And John, Johnny Frazier just already had a reputation, as I mentioned. He'd been arrested, uh, had been an activist, um, suspended from school because he wouldn't take off the wristband celebrating the anniversary of the Brown decision. And so I think he was, they were much more afraid of him. Now, 
If you're just joining us, our guest this segment has been Devery Anderson. He's the author of A Slow Calculated Lynching, the story of Clyde Kennard. You've also written a book about Emmett Till, the murder that shocked the world and propelled the civil rights movement. So can you tell us a little bit about the Emmett Till book? Yeah, that was a project that uh, took years and years. I depending on how I, I learned about Emmett Till, just I'd never heard his name, at least that I remembered until 1994, when I saw a uh, documentary that highlighted about 15 minutes of the Till case in this documentary, Eyes on the Prize. And that was my introduction yes. to the case. And I, uh, when I saw that the men who killed him got away with it, and what they did to him, when, it, when you see the picture of Emmett Till's face, oh. It just depressed me so much that I yes. I couldn't get it out of my mind. And I started asking people, do you know about this case? And then I started going to bookstores and just any book, either a biography of an African-American civil rights activist or a history of that period, I would always go to the index and see if it talked about Emmett Till. And if it did, I read what you know, they said. A lot of times there was nothing mentioned. And I was really surprised how many times the case was just mentioned in passing or not at all. So I spent about 10 years uh, learning and I got to know Emmett Till's mother during this time. She was still alive. I first contacted her in 1996 and then we stayed in touch until her death in 2003. Never met her in person, but I did uh, talk to her a lot on the phone. And then after her death in 2003, a year later, the um, uh, Justice Department reopened the case. And I thought, you know, during this investigation, they're probably going to find the trial transcript, which has been lost forever. They'll find other people who were involved and just other stuff will come out. I knew they'd likely exhume the body. We'd know more how he died. So in 2004, I thought now's the time for me really to write a book. I'd been toying with the idea, but I thought there's going to be so much more information that comes out that I want to include the investigation in the book. And so I, uh, I started working and it took me another 10 years from 2004 to 2014 to finish the book and it came out in 2015. Um, that book was much longer than the Canard case and um, it was such a famous case that I wanted to be able to, I had so many contradictions in the story as far as what happened, yes. the store incident, who was involved, who wasn't, that I had to, uh, it took a long time to, to really do my best to sort through the contradictions and come up with what to me seemed like the most reliable information. And I didn't have to go through all that kind of stuff with the Canard book. And uh, it was a shorter case to have to deal with anyway. So that only took me four years, but the first one took 10. But I think I learned how to be efficient too in the process. I learned how to be a better researcher and more organized and a better writer. So <laughs> all of that kind of helped. Devery Anderson, thank you so much for being our guest today on the African-American Conservative Show. How can our audience continue to follow you and your work? Well, I'm on uh, social media. So Devery Anderson is an easy name. To, there's only one of me uh, out there as far as I know. And uh, I have a website, which is DevryAnderson.com, which... Uh, you can go on, you can click, uh, and it'll take you to Amazon to order the book. I often order copies, and if people want them from me directly, I'll a signed copy, I can send them on uh, to you. So, uh, And also, my email is just everysanderson at gmail.com. Feel free to, to write, and uh, 
you have questions about either case. Um, but I try to make myself uh, accessible. I like to answer questions from people. And uh, so, yeah, feel free anytime, uh, any of you. And I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, and you can reach out. Just my name will, you'll find me easily. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing this bit of underrepresented history for us. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to meet you uh, over this uh, online, over this connection. And uh, thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. All righty. And now it's that favorite time of the show where we bring in the man of the hour, DK. Come on in. DK, we're going to chat. Oh, no. I hey. mean, great. There's going to be a pop quiz. <laughs> How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing okay. That's a great interview. That is really interesting because I remember, um, I, I can't remember if it was in Uncle Tom or Eye on the Prize or one of the things that I did with the kids for uh, Black History, but I, I'm familiar with someone who had applied to this university and kept getting rejected. Um, but I didn't realize that it was uh, Clyde Kennard. So that was really interesting to finally get a little bit more information about this kind of character in the footnote of black history. So that was really, that was really good to find out. Well, I did know of um, an African-American man in the South in the fifties who had applied to a segregated college and they, he was a store owner, and they ruined his credit. And once, you know, by arresting him, and once his credit was ruined, they took over his store. So he lost his business and his livelihood. It was a very sad story, all because he wanted to get a an education. So, uh, see, those are the cases where I think reparations make sense. You know, for a person like that or their direct descendants, people that would have been directly impacted by the financial losses sustained by the family, that I can get on board with. Yeah, that's the that's the point we should make more often is that, you know, a lot of conservatives and especially black conservatives talk about these things, affirmative action and so forth, as if there was never any need for it. You know, some yeah. call... Martin Luther King, oh, he's a socialist, a communist. But if you read the history of what African-Americans endured not too long ago, maybe in the 50s, 60s, yeah. the, the, the lack of opportunity they had, the discrimination they faced, and, and so forth, you really see the point of affirmative action. It's like what they say about Clarence Thomas, you know, how they're mocking him because he probably was a beneficiary of affirmative action as a way to get into Yale Law School. When you look at Clarence's Thomas, Clarence Thomas's background, you know, he, he was raised without uh, uh, parents. He was raised by his grandfather. They lived in poverty. He faced all his racism in life, just trying to learn. You know, he tried to become a priest at one point, faced racism there. Um, so once you know his background, you, you see why 
there's a sort of poetic justice that he was able to take advantage of affirmative action and, and go to Yale Law School. He did well there. And now he's perhaps our most distinguished Supreme Court justice. So, um, I think not, having history and context. Yeah. History Your point is history exactly, and context is important. Exactly. exactly. There, there is... There was a time and place for affirmative action. Absolutely. Like what I, I blogged on Substack. There's a time and place for it. I talked to my father, what he went through. Um, I'm not sure of that time and place. This is 2023. But there was a time and place for it. And I want to bring out this quote from uh, Mr. Clyde Kennard, who, who said ex- back in the 50s what you and I are saying today. He said in a letter, we believe in the dignity and brotherhood of man and the divinity and fatherhood of God. And as such, men should work for the upbuilding of each other in mutual love and respect. We believe when merit replaces race as a factor in character evaluation, the most heckling social problem of modern times will have been solved. And And that's the point we make today. And that's the point of a lot of the people who were actually in the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s especially, is that it was not about race-based quotas. It was about using merit to replace race. You know, um, that's that's why they were marching. And you learn that from Kennard. You learn that from documentaries like Eyes on a Prize. Mm-hmm. It was not about getting special privileges. It was about uh, fairness. And it was to address the inequities that were prevalent at yeah. the time. We right? Equality, I mean, you know, yeah. We equality in you know, a fair playing field, not not an unfair advantage. And that got corrupted somehow over the decades, probably for the political advantage of one particular party. And I won't say which party because I'm very nice. Well, we know what party that was. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll give you a hint. Google George Wallace. Oh, my Google, goodness. Google Bull Connor. She and you'll get the answer. I went there because oh that's ridiculous. It I'm is. trying to be nice. No, told, don't be nice at all because I'm that told, is that, that is a fact. And I here's the thing: I'm the nice one, and now we know. <laughs> <laughs> well, but here's the thing. Well, I do it with a smile, though. So yeah. that's the difference. Um, but here's the thing: you know, there, as we said, there are there were inequi- inequities, and. The other thing that that is important to point out is that during slavery, as I've said, it was illegal to teach a slave to read or to write. And the civil rights movement was really 100 years before uh, our civil rights movement here in in, um, America. And, well, let me go back a little bit. It was illegal to teach a slave to read or write. And that was really only a hundred years before the civil rights struggle. So you're looking at maybe someone's grandparents had been slaves. And so that's not too much to extrapolate that maybe someone's parents couldn't read or write uh, proficiently or fluently maybe. So there could be some things that impacted uh, someone's ability to get in during um, that there were inequities still at that time, a hundred years post uh, slavery. So I I still think that those were those times, but now, now half a century later, um, 
those barriers have been removed. There, there is no SAT requirement for many people. Uh, you know, there is no math component or any of this stuff because we've deemed math racist. And so a lot of those things have been tossed out and there isn't that need as there was with this particular case or with any of the other cases that we've seen where, uh, it was clearly a racial component that you were being denied. As our guest, Devery Anderson said, he said that they were told that it was because, oh, it would cause too much civil unrest on the campus. Well, that's clearly because you're black and you're trying to get into a white university. So exactly. that's a little bit differently. If you're told, hey, it's your race that's causing this mass insurrection on campus and that's why we can't admit you or it's gonna cause problems with the election and the guy that I, that's supposed to succeed me won't get in because we gotta deal with all this racial stuff because you folks wanna be equal, yeah. That's racism. You want to talk about systemic racism. There you go. Ding, 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 ding. We have a winner. That's what it looks like. If you want to look in the dictionary for a picture, that would be it. But that's not the case that we're experiencing now at all. Not even close. You know, uh, you know systemic racism is, as the words say, is uh, when the system is racist, when they can tell you you can't vote. You can't go to college. You can't get this job or that job. And it's all perfectly legal because that's the system. That's systemic racism. And that's what so many African-Americans face, you know, our parents face. So it's a, it's a, it's a different generation. Um, and, and now today is a different. And we, in a sense, we're, we're replacing one form of racism with another. When you have these students who are, Asian, they're from Africa, they're from India. Okay. They, you know, they, they come to this country and they're studying three times as hard as American kids. You know, they go into these math camps, getting math tutors. I spoke about this before, about how yeah. you go to the library near me, you see these kids studying for an SAT exam that's three years down the road. You know, I took the SAT exam day of, you know, I just roll out yeah. and put the SATs. <laughs> I still did better than a few people, I think, but I didn't, I, I definitely didn't study for it for three years or even three hours. No. So, so you see these students and, and again, especially uh, children of legal immigrants who are working so hard to succeed in this country and they're being discriminated against. And that's not what this country is about. That's not what the civil rights movement was about. And as I said, these white students who are gifted or have studied or whatever, why should they lose a spot at Harvard or Stanford or Yale just because we need to have a black kid? You know, as I said with uh, Justice Brown, you know, the black woman on the Supreme Court, rather than a gifted person uh, regardless of color. So I think that there are a lot of uh, kids that are white that are missing out on some of these scholarships because there's just too many white kids, this whole DEI concept of we need to have so many quotas. And as I said with Alan West last week, when I go to the hospital, I don't care what color the doctor is that's working on me. I want to know that they're a good doctor for whatever condition that I have. I'm not going to go to the ER asking for, okay, where's the best Indian doctor that's in here? You know, I mean, it's just ridiculous. So I don't understand why we don't have a meritocracy, a pure 
meritocracy. Now that we don't have a system where people are rejected purely based on their race, as was the case with Clyde Kennard. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, there's a there's a place for pure meritocracy. It's, um, it's, it's in the business world or the academic world or the legal and medical world at large. And when you lowered the standard to get into medical school and law school and so forth, then you, then you have less competent lawyers and doctors down the road. It's inevitable. Um, it's not to say that other people shouldn't be given uh, opportunities. It doesn't always have to be who has the best SAT and GPA score. If that was the case, you know, being a admissions, uh, what do they call those HR people who do the admissions for college? Like admissions coordinators. Yeah. Yeah, admission coordinator would be the easiest job in the world. All they do is, okay, this person has a 1500 SAT, uh, got a 4.0 or 3.8 GPA. He's in, this person doesn't get in. Um, so it doesn't have to be quite that draconian. I mean, you can make exceptions for somebody who's has a slightly lower GPA, but he's a great pianist or he's a great athlete or he served three years in the military or he grew up in poverty the way uh, we, we just referenced uh, uh, Clarence Thomas did. So you can make you can make exceptions. It doesn't have to be strictly. It doesn't have to be written in stone. Yeah. yeah it doesn't have to be strictly by the numbers of how well you did on SATs. And, what and there's extracurriculars that they factor in and how good of a citizen you are and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people, I remember in high school, did a lot of hospital, what they call them, candy stripers or something yeah. like that. They do. Well, and, and, you know, I, I have always said, because I homeschooled the kids, you know, my kids were not great test takers. I was not. A terrific test taker. I had a lot of anxiety. I had a lot of anxiety uh, in school. Um, and I wasn't diagnosed until much later with an anxiety disorder, but I, I really had extreme anxiety. So my kids are not the greatest test takers. So I always advocated for more of a portfolio concept where you looked at someone's full body of work. But you know, I want to ask you a question. I'm going to put you on the spot because uh -oh. here's the thing. If math is racist on one hand, and we are going to um, absolve people of taking the SAT or um, making them take any kind of test or exempting the lowering the standard for math and because math is racist or doing away with the MCAT or LSAT or whatever it is. And yet we are saying that because of DEI, we have to have more doctors and more firefighters and more XYZ. How do you get that without lowering the standard for the whole profession? I'm going to give you an example. If you are a veterinarian, and my daughter is, as I've said, a veterinary assistant, a vet tech, actually, um, 
she's doing math all day long. Math was not her favorite subject and science was not her favorite subject. And I said, well, girlfriend, you know, all you're going to be doing is math and science. So you better, you better decide if you like it or not. And she started doing it. She was really afraid of it, but because she didn't really enjoy biology so much, but she did do some other things and, and decided that she really wasn't as terrible as she thought that she was in her head. But anyway, my point, my question to you is, okay, so you're in the ER and you're an ER nurse and uh, you're there because of quotas, you know, because they lowered the standard um, and you need to calculate. Here's somebody that comes in six foot four, uh, 290 pounds, and they need so many liters of this or they need so many whatevers of that. A milligrams of a certain medication uh, and you've got a syringe that's, you know, a different measure unit of measurement. What do you do? I mean, you can't phone a friend. You can't use a lifeline because that is a lifeline. That's somebody's life or death. What happens in a case like that? Because you needed to have five more black students or 12 more Hispanic students rather than, look, here's somebody who got a perfect 800 on their portion, math portion of the SAT, who could go into the ER and, oh yeah, boop, 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 and there you go. And those seconds... I'm telling you, I went through childbirth and they said because of some, um, we had an unforeseen complication. They said I had a textbook pregnancy. I was set up for a textbook delivery. And I went in and every possible thing that could go wrong went wrong. And they said, had I not uh, had the, um, the IV put in uh, just as a preemptive measure that I saved 10 minutes off of the procedure that saved my child's life. So we're talking about life and death here that just a few minutes could make the difference. And so we can't be going around looking for a calculator that doesn't have the metric system or, you know, whatever. Um, we really need people that, that know how to do the math. So I, I personally would rather have somebody that is proficient in the um, discipline the study area uh, rather than somebody that meets a quota. Yeah. And another thing we've spoken about before that we should touch on again is that these, these race race quotas, they're brutal for the careers of people who actually deserve their positions. Um, yes. You know, you come out of, uh, I think Clarence Thomas talked about how he came out of Yale law school, the top law school in the country, couldn't get a job because everyone just assumed that because he was black he got into Yale just to fill a racial quarter. He got through Yale because of the color of his skin. And that in, a, in the real world where merit is a, uh, the primary thing, he wouldn't be able to cut it. And, you know, and, and the same goes for a lot of people who, who are legitimately smart and they make it as doctors, um, engineers. You know, you go into a ER and you see a black doctor, you wonder, is, is this guy who's going who's about to cut me open is he actually a good doctor or is he a doctor who made it because of um you know favors you know because yeah. of his skin color and 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 a lot and of times people don't true. want to take and the chance that yeah. Racism. yeah yeah a lot of people don't want to take the chance you know the immigrants uh, you know talk, went through the same problem because there was the time where the standards of being a, a doctor in certain countries is lower than it is in, in the United States. So you see a, 
a, a doctor with a strange last name who maybe got his MD in uh, Uzbekistan, wherever. Right. You think this 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 doctor is as good as an American doctor? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm going to agree to let this doctor operate on my child, and you know, and so forth. So. And then you've got reciprocity. I mean, to your point, I mean, there are a lot of people that come from the Philippines or from other places where they are full-fledged doctors. Mexico, I've I've seen other places in the world where they're full-fledged doctors, but they have to retake our boards because our standards are a little different. So they have to retake our boards. And so you want to make sure that the person that you have, um, in, in many cases, is really qualified because they have these doctorates in other countries, but because they have to retake our boards, they may be a certified nursing assistant when really they're a doctor back in their home country. Yeah. And I'll just say one more thing as about today's show is that it was, it was great to talk about Clyde Kennard. Um, and I hope not, not just hope, I think we we're, we're going to do a lot more of these, uh, African-American history stories. Um, I want to talk about Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, the, the civil rights movie, movement of the 50s and 60s, uh, Reconstruction, you know, the movement right after, yes. the, after the Civil War. I want to talk about all these things, legitimate black history. I don't think we'll be doing shows on black queer theory or culture, <laughs> culture, cultural Marxism. And all these this other is ridiculous. Things. When was that ever a part of black history? I, the, only, the only thing I can think of is me growing up that they had RuPaul on in the 80s. I don't I don't understand anywhere else where, you know, um, that made an impact on my black life. I don't know. But I, I would much rather talk about Emmett Till. The movie is coming out. I think, was it this fall? There's going to be a movie about Emmett Till. So mm. I think it's really an important piece of history to to discuss and that we never forget Emmett Till. The fact that Devery Anderson mentioned seeing the pictures of him. Um, I don't know that my heart could take that. I've seen some very, very awful grainy pictures um, that were not very clear. And, you know, um, but I don't know that my little tender heart uh, could take seeing a 14-year-old beaten to a pulp. Um, almost will- not recognition, but... I will, like you just said, I will say that I've seen the pictures and and it's not something you would recognize as human when you see it. No, no, no. And to to know that within, you know, a couple of, I don't know, maybe three or four generations, that that's something that, that isn't that far back in our history. I mean, that was in the 1930s, 40s. So um, and, and barely considered it illegal in certain states, you know. Yeah, to, to yeah. Kill a black man to lynch him. Oh yeah. You know the anti-lynching laws. I mean, we just had the anti-lynching laws erased, right? Was it just a couple years ago? Yeah. That they finally were removed from our books, even though you know they hadn't been in effect really, but uh, they were formally erased. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's just unimaginable that the fourteen-year-old kid got killed for what he. They claim that he whistled at a white woman. Fourteen. At fourteen. Can you? I mean, fourteen-year-olds are kind of goofy. I mean, no offense to the fourteen-year-olds out there, but I mean, they're just—they're still babies in essence. 
Um, and I could see maybe a 14 year old trying to talk to a, another 14 year old or a 12 year old or something like that, but a grown woman and a white woman at that. Yeah. Even a married we, white woman. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you did check her out, can you imagine if I got punished every time I checked out a woman? Now it would be you like. You know what? That's a whole nother show. <laughs> That's a whole nother show. That's a special like show. <laughs> Like a hundred times a day, hundred times a day, I'll be uh, oh, I'll be knocking really on my door. Show. Come out there, DK. <laughs> we saw where your eyes went. Oh, <laughs> on that note, we're yes. gonna wrap up another yes. episode of African American Conservatives. Why get in trouble? <laughs> So it's been a pleasure to have you all joining us this uh, week on African-American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. Be sure that you go to our Substack and uh, check out all of the commentary that we have there, links to this podcast. Remember our Thursday night live stream on YouTube. Uh, and we also post it to Substack and Facebook and all of our social media. So do be sure to do that. But please tune in on Thursday night. We love to hear your questions, get your feedback. You can interact with us. You get to meet me. Yeah, DK will be there too. You can meet him. You can say hi. You can say hi to me. And I guess you got to say hi to him too. It's kind of a twofer. We're a package deal. So be sure to tune in uh, on uh, Thursday nights and also to go to our Substack and follow us now on Threads. So, again, from Studio C, this is Marie signing off. This is DK saying, God save the queen, man. <laughs> he met with King Charles this week. So, oh I think he knows, you know, that, that it, it's the king now, I think. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know that, maybe, maybe next week, by the time we meet again, we'll know who left that cocaine in the White House. But until then, it's a mystery. I think, yeah, I think we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I think somebody will figure it out. All right. All right. Take care, audience. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. You can find us online at acons.substack.com, anchor.fm forward slash AACONS. And also, you can support our work at anchor.fm forward slash AACONS forward slash support. <laughs>